Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today is Monday, April 20th, 2020. Today's podcast is titled Corona, an inside report from the front lines. In this podcast, I speak with Dr. Zevi Hamburger, who is an OB anesthesiologist at Mount Sinai. I've known Zevi for a long time as an OB anesthesiologist, and he's an amazing doctor. When the corona crisis started, Zevi immediately joined the hospital efforts to manage this disease, got corona himself, and then returned to work to join the rapid response team and run an ICU. He is truly on the front lines fighting against this disease. We talk about his experience as a first responder in the height of the pandemic and what it was like for him and his coworkers. I am certain you will find him interesting, informative, and truly inspirational. On Thursday, we will be dropping two podcasts with one of my partners and mentors, Dr. Michael Silverstein. Mike is one of the finest obstetrician gynecologists I've ever known, a master teacher, and an amazing photographer. The first podcast is titled, He Invented the Selfie. He really did. And in the second podcast, we talk about menopause. I hope you've been enjoying the Healthful Woman podcast. If so, please feel free to tell your friends and drop us a rating and review on Apple. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Okay, we're here with Dr. Zevi Hamburger, who's an assistant professor of anesthesia at Mount Sinai, who's fellowship trained in obstetric anesthesia and is now part of the rapid response team for Corona at Mount Sinai. Zevi, welcome to Healthful Woman. Thanks for having me on the, on the program. How you doing today? Good. Busy, but good. Yeah, I would imagine this is a pretty busy time for you in your life. Mm-hmm. So just so our listeners understand a little bit of background, you're normally an OB anesthesiologist and an anesthesiologist. Explain what that means. Anesthesiology is a unique field where we practice a lot of basic critical care, life-saving medicine while we're keeping people asleep and safe during surgery. A lot of anesthesiology training revolves around keeping the sickest among us alive while they're having one of the most stressful times in their life, an operation. Obstetric anesthesia is a different variation on that. We work with the obstetricians and the nurses to really serve as lifeguards on the floor. So if someone does start to deteriorate, we can work as a team to help keep them safe. And our side job is putting in epidurals and spinal to help with pain relief during labor. So the the specialty of obstetric anesthesia is built on top of this background of really a skill set surrounding what we call resuscitation or life-saving practices. So during your time as an obstetric anesthesiologist, most of your time is spent helping women women in labor in terms of placing epidurals for labor or spinals for C-sections, but then obviously when things sometimes do get more dangerous for them, that's when you step in and help take care of them in a more critical setting than just putting in an epidural. Absolutely. Right. And based on the labor floor, there may be one of those a month, one of those a week, or one of those a day, or several a day based on sort of what is the population that's coming in. Exactly. And it depends which hospital you're at and different patients that you have, but it's all part of the the team that's on a labor and delivery floor to keep you and your child safe. In a typical labor floor, are most anesthesiologists 
trained sort of specifically in obstetric anesthesia, or is that just a part of the general anesthesia training? It depends the hospital setting, but there's also a growing trend for the past few years to have more and more fellowship trained obstetric anesthesiologists or people with unique experience specifically on labor and delivery floors. And it's been a push, not just from our organizations, but also from the OBGYNs, from your organizations. And a lot of it comes down to having the same people working in the same areas to create teams, which always take care of patients. Right. And so essentially what that means is for general anesthesia training, once you're finished and you are an anesthesiologist and able to practice, you know, independently as an anesthesiologist, you chose to do extra training just in obstetric anesthesia where you focused for a full year just on that specific area of anesthesiology, correct? Correct. And so normally, again, pre-corona, how much time were you spending on OB anesthesia versus general anesthesia? Between my daily schedule and my calls, the extra time that I spent on labor and delivery, I was about 50% in each side. So you were spending half your time doing on the labor floor doing OB anesthesia, but also half the time in the main operating rooms during general anesthesia for everybody, basically. For everything, exactly. And a lot of what I did in the main operating rooms did complement what I did on labor and delivery and vice versa. But it's one of the nice parts of obstetric anesthesiology. You kind of do both things to elevate both options. Six weeks ago, your life changed dramatically, correct? Yes. Much of America didn't see what was about to come or the scope of what was about to come. And, and we started getting inklings of what was about to happen, the tsunami that was brewing. Many of the people at Mount Sinai Hospital were working feverishly to try and build pathways and protocols, both on labor and delivery and the main operating room area, which is a large component of any major hospital now, to try and protect patients, protect staff, and really advance this pandemic that I don't think anyone really appreciated the scope at the time and really figure out the best way to take care of people during a crisis. And so what was your role in this originally? It was mostly related to labor and delivery, yes? In the beginning, we were working with labor and I was working a lot in labor and delivery, but the other 50% of me was in the main operating rooms. And we, we kind of all looked at each other and realized, what are we going to do if we have a highly contagious patient coming into one OR, not the other OR? How are we going to figure out how to manage that patient and protect the rest of the staff and the rest of the patients from this virus? And so a lot of what we did was building these protocols, literally step A through Z, on how to to transport patients between different areas, what kind of masks people should be wearing. And we built it, I built it really for the operating room. And, and then we also adapted it to labor and delivery, which also has operating rooms in other areas. And really all the teams worked very hard together before the crisis really erupted to try and guess which way it was going to go and how to prepare. And so while this is all going on and you're preparing and there are sort of a handful of patients coming in with corona, you got infected yourself, yes? At first, you know, I have to say it was a little awkward and embarrassing. I was the guy kind of doing demonstrations day in and day out, night in, night out with our teams, with our nurses, with our other physicians on putting on and taking off the protective equipment and hand washing and getting prepared for these patients. And then on Friday the 13th, before the real eruption happened in New York City, I got a very mild cough and decided not to come in, and it turned out being coronavirus. I did not catch it at the hospital. I'm pretty sure it was community-acquired. But 
I got it myself. My wife got it. She had an exposure. It was all over the outside world at that point in, in our neighborhood. So not sure where I got it, but that's one of the, the challenges with coronavirus because it has such a long incubation period. It takes so long for you to get symptoms. It's impossible to know exactly where someone contracted it from. Most importantly, how are you and your family doing? We luckily had milder cases. We had a, a lot of different symptoms, which I'm happy to talk about. But luckily, we, none of us needed hospitalization, nor extra oxygen or anything like that. And our kids never really showed many symptoms. They maybe had sniffles or a very low-grade fever for a day or two, but it, it was really minimal for them, which is always very reassuring. Right. How long were you guys even sick, would you say? So I had symptoms for about a week, except one symptom persisted for about two, three weeks, and that was the loss of smell and taste. But luckily, that's recovered now. My wife had about 10 to 14 days of milder symptoms than I had, but just a more prolonged course, which seems to be another pattern that we're seeing with coronavirus. And then the kids, a day, not even. <laughs> kids. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. It is remarkable, like you said, for most people in our age groups, and for kids, it tends to be a mild course, like how you described. And if we didn't know about Corona, they would think they had a bad cold or a mild flu, maybe a little bit unusual mm -hmm. and not being able to smell. But it's really, fortunately, not been so dangerous for people who are younger and healthy. But obviously, in a hospital setting, there's people of all ages, and that's both amongst patients who could be sick or well, but then obviously amongst the staff also. When were you able to actually come back to work? I ended up coming back about nine days later, just because of the way I got sick on a Friday. So I ended up coming back, not that Monday, but the week after. My symptoms have been resolved for more than 72 hours. It was more than a week after the initial onset of symptoms. So the employee health cleared me to come back to work. Although no one really knows how long you're infectious for, and even though most people assume it's probably just the first week, I was masked up. 24 hours a day in the hospital so I wouldn't spread any virus to anyone else. Right. That was one of the very confusing things, certainly early on in this ordeal, but it still remains confusing is no one really knows exactly how long someone's contagious for, what would make them contagious versus not contagious. Is it their symptoms? Is it the time? Is it a fever? Is it a test? And so at the time, the employee health at Mount Sinai was following the New York City Department of Health, like you said, as long as it was seven days from the onset of your symptoms and you were basically better and without fever, then you were considered able to come back. But since no one really knew for sure, you are always taking more precautions maybe than you would have otherwise. There was definitely a lot of confusion because I live in New Jersey. And so I got a call from the New Jersey Board of Health with one set of recommendations. I got a call from Mount Sinai infectious disease physicians who are really on top of everything. And they gave me a different set of recommendations. As confusing as it was for me, a physician, I can only imagine what other people are feeling as well. And I see that a lot in the community outside of the hospital is people don't know how even to treat their neighbors, their friends, their family members who've had the disease and have since recovered because there aren't really clear recommendations yet because we just don't have the knowledge yet. Right. And, and like you said, you know, we have people in our community where New Jersey tells them one thing, one hospital tells them another thing, New York State tells them a third thing, New York City tells them a fourth thing. And again, it's not because there's huge argument. It's just no one really knows. So people just draw lines differently. And that balance between being overly cautious versus being too cautious. And so everyone draws their lines a little bit differently with that. 
people are unfortunately are going to have to make some of their own decisions. But I always find it's helpful to speak to your own personal physician to help navigate changing data and, and knowledge that's flowing around. Right. Now, one of the interesting things is since you were one of the early healthcare workers to get corona and to recover from it, when you came back to work, did you feel safer in a certain sense knowing that you already had it? And were you able to take on maybe different or quote unquote riskier roles or responsibilities because you had it? I discussed this with my wife and family before coming back. There were some reports out of some of the Asian countries about reinfection rates, but it, it very much seemed like this virus would behave like most other viruses, where your body does create some level of immunity. That being said, it's still a little bit of a, of a gamble because we just don't know yet the level of immunity that's produced, how long it lasts. Although just understanding from flu, even though this is a very different virus than flu, you, you seem to have some level of immunity for at least a couple of months to weeks afterwards, which would be, to my knowledge, the shortest end of it. I was kind of hoping to have immunity, but the way I saw it and my wife saw it is I had it. I may have immunity, but my peers, my friends, my coworkers, they never had it. There's no way they have immunity. That was my my calculus in my head. It's better to take a 50-50 chance than a 100%, 0% chance. And so that was kind of the, the calculus in, our, in my head coming back. And so that was your own calculus, but what about in terms of the hospital did maybe the you know infectious disease people or the people running the ORs or ICU say, okay, you know, we have a certain number of people who we know have been exposed. Let's give them the higher risk jobs. Is that something that they took into account? They did not. They did not want to put anyone in at risk without knowledge. And since there was no knowledge, there was zero pressure from my department, from any department at all to be quote unquote on the front line doing the riskier procedures. And even now that, you know, more of my colleagues were out and coming back and we can talk antibody testing as well later. Even with these tests, we still don't know. There's no pressure at all for any of us to do higher risk or different things than anyone else. Some people will be willing to volunteer and some people won't. And that's also understandable because we just we just don't know yet. I made that choice with my wife, obviously. My mother wasn't too happy about it, so I only told her a couple of days later. But it, it was a choice, 100% a choice. Did having the infection yourself is that something that helped you connect to patients and families in a way, you know, when you were taking care of them? Or is it something you kept to yourself for fear that maybe they would be afraid of you taking care of them? Or how did you navigate that with the patients? I ended up managing a lot of the critically ill patients. And the ones who I was able to have conversations with, I would explain that I had it, I got better. A lot of people I know had it got better to try and alleviate some of their anxiety. However, on the flip side, there's also a little bit of guilt associated with it. And a lot of my colleagues and friends in, in hospitals right now, doctors and nurses, they're living away from their families. They're scared every time they go home, they're going to infect their mother, their father, their children. It's fear that makes this monster so scary, so dangerous, because it, it breaks down our culture of connecting with each other. And I felt guilty that I didn't have that because, you know, my wife had it already. I had it already. Chances are our kids had it, but even so kids are, for some 
wonderful reason, much, much less affected by it. So I didn't have as much fear about it with the, with the children. I definitely felt guilty telling people, you know, I had it, not for fear of that they would shun me. I didn't feel that at all. It was just, I didn't feel like I could relate to them and their fears or anxieties. Right. And maybe in a sense, like you said, they'll feel bad because you're, you know, you're the lucky one who got it and is better and your family has it. So you can sort of live a normal life, whereas everyone else couldn't, yeah. maybe. A lot of people said that. And I, totally agree with them. You know, like I totally get that. I am quite actually lucky that we got it. We had, you know, milder forms. You need hospitalization. Thank goodness. We were lucky. We are lucky about it. That's one of the things that motivated me to take on these different roles. Taking a sidebar here, it really is remarkable. You know, we're talking and here you are, you're taking care of people. You're doing extra hours in the most high risk settings. You're taking care of the sickest patients in the, in difficult circumstances. You got infected yourself. Your wife got infected. And you're talking about how lucky you are. And it's really, it's it's remarkable. And it it's definitely gives us a sense of your character. And it's reassuring that the people who are taking care of us have such high character and really are selfless. And I know you're not going to respond to that because I'm embarrassing you, but it just has yep, to be I'm said. I'm blushing. Good thing it's a podcast. <laughs> but it just, but it has to be said. So getting back, so you come back to work and then you were moved from the labor and delivery area to the more critical setting. You were put on the rapid response team for COVID, correct? No one put me there. I just kind of shoved myself onto it. <laughs> a lot of anesthesia training revolves around resource management. It revolves around triage. And, and so I kind of saw it and putting breathing tubes in is is our life's work. It's what we trained for for so many years, the difficult situations, planning for it. And just to put it in perspective, the breathing tube procedure, putting it in, taking it out is at this point, what people think are probably one of the higher risk procedures on COVID patients, because when someone's coughing or breathing during that process, they're kind of spraying the virus into the air. So I just figured that would be the best place to start if I'm going to really try and make a difference and help. That's where I showed up on Monday morning. I said, you know, like I'll help build the protocol still. We'll test them. We'll review them. We'll work with it. And we did. One of our first OR cases was actually a cesarean delivery where we followed the protocol with all the leadership in the hospital watching and making sure that they could apply this everywhere else because obviously they're very concerned for the whole system, learning every day how to make things better here. And then it quickly evolves into just following rapid response. So two things I want to talk about first is, and you mentioned this at the very beginning, is the overlap between the training to be an, an anesthesiologist and the practice of being an anesthesiologist and what's needed for patients in intensive care. So people say, all right, you know, doctors in an intensive care unit, but there's a lot of kinds of doctors who rotate through an intensive care unit. And anesthesiologists, as you said, are probably uniquely equipped for a situation like this because you're used to number one, emergencies. You're used to intubating people to putting in breathing tubes. You're used to taking care of people who are intubated and are very sick and are undergoing stressful things. And you also interact with so many different departments in the hospital that you're sort of used to being in different places as well. I'm part of our societies also. They've adapted to put out so much education material so we can evolve into this role of really plugging in all the holes. So the ICU needs backup. We can do that. Nursing needs backup. We could do that. Recovery room, operation, you know, ORs, labor and delivery, even medicine units, other types of physicians are getting a little overwhelmed. We can help with that. Having that ability definitely makes us a unique player in this arena. 
Right. And the second thing is explain exactly what the rapid response team is. Like, what is the concept of it? Who's on such a team and when are you called? Sort of what does that mean? This was started at Mount Sinai just a few years ago, but it's been in other areas. What a rapid response team is an escalation pathway. So when a doctor is taking care of a patient in the hospital and they just keep getting sicker and they want to increase the amount of care that they get, maybe send them to an ICU or something called a step-down unit, which is almost like an ICU, and they just need more eyes on the patient. A rapid response team consists of usually an ICU doctor, a critical care physician, matched with nurse practitioners or ICU fellows who are also doctors in advanced training, respiratory therapists who can manage ventilators. It's a small group of people who can respond to help the primary team's physician or nurse practitioners or PAs co-manage and make a game plan for the patient. That might be them just coming and giving very specific recommendations. Maybe you should try X, Y, and Z and see what happens. Or it might be this patient needs to go to the ICU. We're going to start that process and help you manage for the next hour or two until we can get them where they need to go. It's almost like someone in the hospital being able to call 911. Right. It's, you know, so so it's, you know, you're a doctor, you're a nurse, you're taking care of a patient and you say, I need four or five more people here immediately or something terrible is going to happen. And you make that call and then this team shows up within minutes. Right. I mean, that's the job is to get there rapidly. Exactly. They get there rapidly and they really help out. And before the team started at Mount Sinai, the anesthesia team served this role, but we were often called when the patients were already very ill, needing breathing tubes, or needing ventilators, or needing other things, since the rapid response team has really built up their presence at Mount Sinai, anecdotally speaking, our role just to put, you know, put breathing tubes in and escalate care has dropped off significantly because they're really catching things earlier and helping patients earlier before people get sicker. They've really been incredible value to our system and and really taking care of people and keeping people safe. So it's a great team-based approach so we can use our staff really efficiently. I mean, I know that before all this on the labor floor, periodically, we'd have to call the rapid response team. And again, like you said, it's so helpful for the doctors and for the patients, obviously, to be able to call a group of people in who are going to come immediately and help. And sometimes they come and say, you know what, we're here. Things seem to be calming down. We're going to leave and we'll come back if needed. And sometimes you're like, yeah, we have to move this patient's intensive care unit immediately. And sometimes it's in between, like, hey, let's just watch for 30 minutes and see what happens so we can decide. Is there a separate rapid response team specifically for Corona, or is it just they had more rapid response teams available for anybody and a lot of people happen to have Corona? There's still one team that's responding to everything. They're working very closely with the ICU leadership and ICU doctors that that they're colleagues with, and also emergency room doctors who are also working on the rapid response teams. There's one team and just their volume, the amount of people they see has gone up drastically because of coronavirus. After your time on the rapid response team, you were actually running a newly built intensive care unit, sort of a temporary one, correct? Basically what happened was as our hospital was really ramping up resources very, very rapidly, we filled up our ICUs. We built more ICUs and more ICUs and more ICUs very, very rapidly to accommodate this surge of illness that really struck New York City. And one of the days I came in, again, just on a weekend day in the morning to help out with the rapid response team with our residents, and we put breathing tube in someone and kind of turned around and said, okay, who's going to take care of this patient? 
And they said, well, looks like you have to make a new ICU now. And so the anesthesia department really ramped up staffing and, and we converted a medical surgery unit with anesthesia machines and monitors into a fully functional ICU. Working with our nursing counterparts, we really built a fully functional unit very rapidly to account for the surge that was coming in. Right. And this was happening all over the hospital, and they were converting areas that had nothing to do with ICUs into ICUs as quickly as they could to accommodate all these patients. They were doing it very efficiently and professionally, and really incredible to see the full resources of, of our institution really come to bear. They were calling on every, every string they had, every connection they had to really help out and build units, build equipment, the life-saving devices. We had an innovation team that was discovering how to turn BiPAP and CPAP machines into ventilators and split ventilators if needed, which luckily we don't need to do that at this point. Every single thing came to a halt and the entire really might of the institution was focused on this just triage and, and solving this problem. And they did. And part of that strategy included all of the stopping of other services in the hospital. So they stopped elective operations. A lot of people stopped doing you know visits or things that could lead to admissions to the hospital. And they tried to keep all that volume as low as humanly possible because they knew that they would need that space, number one. Number two, the resources of the staff, the nurses, the doctors, to be working and helping these particular patients for X amount of time, whether it's two weeks, two months, no one really knew for sure when it started, but they had to be ready for pretty much any possibility. Absolutely. And a lot of our colleagues from other departments were deployed all over the system in Brooklyn and Queens at Elmhurst Hospital, which was getting really hit very hard because of the NYC system. Like even in, in our brand new budding unit, a group of urology attendings, people have been practicing for years in urology, in a surgical subspecialty, they wanted to work in our ICU and, and help us out, even if the roles would be different than what they're used to. And so people really throughout the system, many, many people really came in to volunteer to help beef up this, this adaptation of the hospital to increase capacity beyond anything it's ever done before. And now at the peak of when this was happening in terms of the admissions, which is probably, I mean, we're recording Tuesday, April 14th. It was probably about a week ago, I guess, give or take. A week ago, yeah. Yeah, when the peak. How crowded was it? We didn't actually run out of ventilators at Mount Sinai. We never ran out of space or ventilators. And in fact, because we were able to escalate the building of new resources so rapidly, we ended up absorbing many, many intubated, ventilated, patients, patients on respirators from many of the other hospitals in the region. There were some days we were getting five or t you know five new patients in one in one swoop to our, our new makeshift ICU. Even last week, we ended up increasing our capacity even further. We called in our backup team of anesthesiologists. We create small pockets of, of staff members so we could rapidly deploy anywhere they need to be deployed. So we called in one of our our backup teams of residents and attending physicians who are finished with their training to rapidly increase our capacity on our own unit. And then things started to slow down. The rate of new admissions was slowing and almost matching some of the rate of discharges. And so it looked promising that we may be towards that peak that everyone keeps waiting for. And so one of the important things is we all talk about flattening the curve, and it's really important for people to stay home to flatten the curve. But the other part of that graph is that horizontal line, that healthcare capacity. That's the line. And so what 
people outside the hospital need to do is, is flatten the curve. Inside the hospital, we have to hold that line and increase that line as much as possible so the curve never touches that line. And so at this point, I'm quite hopeful that we've done that, that we've been able to lift that line up to be able to hold it off against the peak that's here. And now we have to figure out what's next. Now, when you were talking about all the transfers coming in to your units in Mount Sinai, was that something that was coordinated hospital to hospital, doctor to doctor? Was that something that was overseen by the city or the state? How would that coordinate that a hospital is getting overrun and they say, we have to move people? How would they not even call you? It was done by the leadership of the institution and the leadership of the ICUs. And it was done very rapidly. They were able to adapt very quickly to changing situations in our own hospital and the other ones. I'm not sure if the city or the state or anyone else got involved, but in our hospital, a lot of the, the people in charge are they themselves physicians, either anesthesiologists or, or critical care doctors or other types of doctors who are luckily used to triage. They're able to identify who we can help and how we can do it pretty rapidly. We ended up just getting calls from the ICU leadership. We need to accept these patients. Can we take them here? Luckily, we can just say yes. We're able to increase our capacity. There's been a lot of talk about sort of the other resources that were brought into the city that were separate from the hospitals, the mobile hospitals, the Javits Center, the military cruise ship, you know, that came in. There was a lot of talk about why they didn't fill up. And was it because, you know, someone wasn't doing their job or, you know, whatever. And it just seems to me that in these settings, doctors and hospitals are used to doing things a certain way. If I'm a, you know, running an intensive care unit and I don't have a bed for somebody, the easiest thing for me is to call someone at the hospital I know, I know the head of the intensive care unit there to say, hey, I know you, can you take this patient? And it's one, two, three, as opposed to something that sort of is new that is thrown into the works. Is that is that what you saw? Or do you have another explanation for why those weren't used or weren't needed or the, the reason they sort of stayed mostly empty? I don't have a good reason for it. It could be something as simple as being a little overprepared is better than being underprepared. Also, one other interesting thing is our ability to care for our coronavirus patients has been improving drastically every day, every week. In the beginning of the crisis, the expectation was a certain number of people are going to need eventually, a certain number of people are going to need ICU beds. And then as American and worldwide knowledge, and there's so much pressure now to figure out how we're going to fix this, as it all comes to bear, we're learning and we're adapting. So I'm hopeful that it, it could just be that the response to it has improved, and that might be keeping some of these numbers down. Coordinating outside systems like that, I'm sure, is also very challenging and fitting into to, you know, already a very complex medical system. I don't know what's going on on those levels. I just see my little part of the world. Well, it is reassuring to know that not everyone understands necessarily what's going on inside the hospital. And the fact that what you're saying is, although it was very busy and so many resources were pulled in, and this in fact, there did remain capacity. You were able to take all the patients who came in as well as others and never ran out of you know, ventilators or doctors or nurses, at least in the Mount Sinai system, which is a very big one. That's pretty reassuring, like you said, that not only was flattening the curve potentially helpful for that, but being able to raise that capacity at the same time was helpful for that. And when you're talking about treatments, do you mean things like the medications that are out there or is it just how to run the ventilator settings? What are your thoughts on those? All of it. So a lot of what we've learned does come out from other countries, but a lot of what we learned comes just four weeks ago or three weeks ago. We're treating 
the ventilators like we do acute respiratory distress syndrome, but we're also tweaking it because this is behaving differently than that. We're changing recommendations on how to use steroids appropriately because initial data from other countries was that steroids are all wrong. And we've actually seen the opposite, that the short course of steroids may actually help a lot of people. We're obviously learning from the azithromycin and the hydroxychloroquine studies that are likely emerging. You know, the question is when to use those. They may not be very helpful in ICU care, but maybe before that they may be helpful. So a lot of people are trying new therapies, learning very quickly, publishing and yelling their data out, and then we're kind of adapting to it as quickly as we can, which is actually quite quickly. We can learn something one day and apply it the next day in all of our ICUs. Even though it sounds like it should be chaotic, what really impressed me most at where I'm working is there was an order to it. There was very much a control to it. And it wasn't just people freaking out and yelling from the rooftops. It was very coordinated and we all kind of fell in together to attack this. It's so interesting that you mentioned that because I was going to ask you, just in the past few days, I've gotten a couple of emails or WhatsApps from friends of mine who sent me links to either videos or articles of people, I don't really know who they are, if they're qualified, they know anything, coming up with all these new theories that they know that nobody else does about what is really coronavirus, how is it really working, all the doctors have it wrong, everyone's doing it wrong. And I think people need to be quite cautious of those types of reports because when someone just makes a YouTube video and throws it out there and says that I know how to treat corona and nobody else does, I'd be quite skeptical over those things. And the people who do this all day, every day are not on an island. They're talking to each other. They're coordinated. The doctors are talking to each other amongst different hospitals around the country, around the world to try to figure out what works in a rapid setting. And at the same time, trying to do some sort of research to figure this out and maybe a more organized setting as well. Yeah. And so it's hard to figure out what is a fad and what is going to be real and helpful. And so there's definitely some degree of adaptation, but this is one of the good things at our hospital is that a lot of the people in charge are ICU doctors who are very good. They have a lot of experience in sorting through a lot of a lot of the good data and the bad data, and then working together to try and figure out, let's try this as a group and, and go ahead with this plan. For example, they instituted starting blood thinners on many of our patients, something that we started doing in our ICU a little earlier, but and a lot of the ICU started doing this a little earlier, but then started because we saw improvement with these blood thinners. And even though some of the data is still slowly coming out, the hospital leadership quickly jumped on it got a, a board of experts together to figure out the best regimens. And usually these protocols with these guidelines take weeks or months to make. A couple of days later, we had very clear knowledge from the hospital. Let's try this. This is what we should be doing. This is what our experts say. Let's go ahead. So it, things are just turning around so much quicker than ever before. And a lot of that is just the the urgency of it and the effort they're pe- people putting in. But also, and this has come up a lot in the podcast I've been doing, this real sense of, you know, a unified goal that everyone is on the same team working towards the same goal, trying to achieve the same things for our patients. And when that happens in medicine, anywhere actually, but, you know, we're talking about medicine now, amazing things can be achieved. And sometimes we question why it's not always as good, but certainly when a crisis like this happens, people do step up and work together 
and do it very efficiently and very quickly. I couldn't agree with you more. And this is something that we've always done on labor and delivery. We've always prided ourselves in our labor and delivery suite at Mount Sinai. Absolutely. Is that your team, our team, the nursing team, we're all one team and we're all friends. We all talk. And because of that, we anticipate what we need and help each other out before we even have to ask for it. And team-based approach medicine is by far the most efficacious. It works the best. And my chair was just talking to me this morning. He's an ICU doctor, by he's also an anesthesiologist, obviously, but he has extra training in, in critical care. He was noting, he's like, when you're in the ICU and you develop a, a team approach, a protocol, we're going to manage all the patients like this in this way. We get this, this, this system up and running. Even if every single part of that protocol is disproven medically that it doesn't work, patients still do better. Because the whole team is coming together and working in a specific way to help everyone out, it makes things run smoother, makes things work better. And during this time of crisis, everyone feels that they're in it together. And I think overall, the morale is still pretty high, even though this is obviously a sad and dangerous disease, and people are really trying to help each other out. It's so interesting that you mentioned that. That was going to be my follow-up question is now, and even let's say during the height of it, you know, a week to two weeks ago, what was the general mood like? amongst the staff, amongst the healthcare workers, amongst people who were there every day, seeing all of these sick people come in, many of them dying, many of them there a long time, alone, no family members able to see them, people working you know, very long hours, very hard work. What was the mood like? I'm a hopelessly positive person, but to me, people were really trying to support each other. And obviously, when there's a crisis at hand, there's going to be frustrations that arise. One of the frustrations that you see a lot of talk about is the protective equipment, how much we have, where it's coming from, do we have enough of it? And I think that was an area of fear that people had in the beginning of this. Still something obviously we're considering every day. But I think the majority of people, or really pretty much everyone I've worked with, they're kind of using those feelings and supporting each other. And that's leading to more teamwork which when people feel like they're making a difference and that we're all kind of in it together and we're in a fight together and we're supporting each other, people generally have been pretty positive. Obviously, there's going to be outliers and some days people are going to have bad days. And, you know, I've seen people break down and all we can do is try and put an arm around them six feet apart, obviously, and help them through it. And, you know, this is obviously very challenging times for everyone. For my own personal example, like one of the earlier days I started, you know, working on this new ICU, I'm having what we call a goals of care discussion where I'm talking with a patient who's having a lot of trouble breathing with her, with family members. And we're trying to determine what we're going to do to keep her safe and how we're going to treat her in the future as they're talking to each other and, you know, saying that they love each other, saying, goodbyes because they don't know what the future is going to bring. No one's there in the hospital. It's just me holding the phone, trying to be part of this very sad and scary family moment. I'm also crying with them because we're, we're still people taking care of people here. When I went out, though, the, the team that was with me, you know, they saw I was obviously distraught about it. They're all there to support us, too. And, you know, as much as we're trying to support our families and our patients' families, it's when you're going through the shared trauma, the shared experience together, it really helps to have people with you. I totally agree. And this is something that happens always in medicine. It's not just with Corona. I mean, I know on the labor floor, which, as you know, is frequently a very you know happy place because a lot of happy things are happening. But 
it's also a very intense environment because since there's high volume on any any given day, there's always something that's very uh, dangerous that's going on there in terms of a patient. She could have a complication or something comes in and people have to work rapidly and you know frequently the outcomes are still very good, but not always. And so we have that sort of intense mentality and but the labor floor team is so close and people are close with each other at work, frequently out of work. People know about each other's lives. We talk to each other and it really does create an environment where you can support one another during those very difficult moments when things don't go well for our patients or don't go well for us or we're having bad days. And it's so important because healthcare is not, like you said, it's not just about you know, knowing the disease, knowing the treatment and implementing it. There's so much of that personal aspect to it of connecting with patients, connecting with each other. And, you know, we're humans, we're people taking care of people. And all of that is is shuffled together and can't really be separated one from another. And it's critical. It is critical. And it's one of the reasons why I like coming to work on our labor and delivery floor, because that element is really stressed and important that people taking care of people. And I do agree. It's interesting what you said about that virtual hug or, you know, the virtual arm around the neck and being, you know, six feet from each other. It is difficult because as staff and as colleagues, we frequently are high-fiving and fist-bumping and hugging. And it's a close group of people. And then when you're put in this stressful environment and you don't get that physical contact, it's actually a little weird in a sense. It's hard because you're taken out of your normal context of how you interact with people. If I see a resident who had a very bad outcome crying, I can't put my my arm around him or her and say everything's going to be okay. I have to stand like another side of the room and say everything's going to be okay. And it's it's different and it's challenging. We have to adapt as well. Like we, I had uh, on my, in our ICU, we had half the floor was ICU, half the floor was not ICU managed by medicine teams. And one of the medicine residents, she was having a, a little bit of a, a hard time. She advocating and caring so well for one of her patients, really incredible physician, incredible person. And the, unfortunately, the, the, the patient, she was getting sicker and sicker, and it was just getting to her, which is understandable because this is a horrible, horrible virus we're fighting. And so the only thing we could do besides her obviously trying to our best to help her with the medical care is kind of adopt her into our team even for just a couple of hours to a day just so they would she would know that there's people here for her exchanging phone numbers with with strangers who've never met before until that moment but you've gone through this shared experience that's how we're doing it but all you kind of want to do is everyone just get together and just hug because there's no it's it's trauma you're going through in the same regard have you been able to appreciate the outpouring of support from the general community for you and for your team and for the doctors and nurses and workers in the hospital. I know there has been a tremendous amount. Is it something you've been able to, you know, pause and, you know, take in and soak in? I definitely appreciate how people have come together to try and give us support. I hope it doesn't die down as this drags out because I think time is going to be the enemy for a lot of the healthcare workers when they start to think and dwell on the horrors that coronavirus has unleashed on our hospitals and our friends and our families. Really, in a few weeks from now, to a few months from now, it's really when we're going to need the most support. It's definitely helpful now, and, and I hope it continues. As someone who's on the front lines and you're describing how crazy it was and how have you noticed practically when you said things have slowed down? Is it that the beds aren't as full, you're closing down units and 
sort of closing the doors on them temporarily or hopefully permanently? What is it that you've seen that would sort of support the idea that hopefully we're on the back end of this? It sounds like from hospital leadership that the number of people requiring high CUs has been static. The number's kind of staying the same. So the same people who are, number of people who are coming in are kind of going out. So it's remaining relatively stable. It's still much higher than our, our system is used to, but it's remaining relatively stable, which means that the number of new cases is, is probably slowing down. That doesn't mean that the system is not stretched right now, because it is. It just means that likely we're not going to get overwhelmed at this point in time. And that's really important, and that's it that's is. encouraging. I mean, obviously, this has been so difficult on the entire world, but you know, certainly on New York City, just the fact that there's some positive news coming out that it seems to be leveling off is really uh, it's something to be encouraged about. I'm very hopeful. We may not get a vaccine for 12 to 18 months, although maybe it, it will be sooner, but all we really have to do is figure out how to limit the progression of this disease. So if we figure out, let's say, blood thinners might be the key or some antiviral medication like an antibiotic, but for viruses is the key or something else just slows it down so that it acts more like the flu where it's still dangerous, but it doesn't kill as many people. If we could just mitigate it a little bit so the system doesn't get overwhelmed again, then we can start thinking about returning to normal. And I think with all of the brain power, people power, resources being thrown at this. I have a lot of hope and faith in humankind to figure this one out sooner than later. The last thing I just want to ask you about is, what have you learned from this, not related to corona specifically, but just about maybe you know response to a crisis or teamwork or anything in that regard, something broader that you may have that you may take away from this whole experience, this surreal experience you're going through right now? I think something that I'm going to take away is that as different as people are from each other, we all kind of have the same fears and, and concerns and appreciations. We're more similar than we think. Just from what I've seen in the hospital, taking care of people from everywhere, all different walks of life, we're all investing our heart and our soul and everything all together. And it's really incredible. It's inspirational in a sense. I mean, tragedy and crisis like this also brings about great inspiration and great hope and great faith yeah. in people and what we're all capable of when we're at our best. And it is it is impressive. And if you want your mother to listen, this is a point where she should tune in because I'm going to talk about you again. When you know, actually talking to you and you are one of those people who is literally the first responder, the front lines, who was there with the sickest people at the worst point in their lives, doing everything they can to save their lives. And it's not just you, obviously. There's you know, hundreds and thousands of people like you whose entire goal every day waking up is to help people and to save people and to do it selflessly and thoughtfully. And I think we can take great pride and also we can feel very secure that the people charged with taking care of us are truly amazing. And I know you would never say that about yourself, but I'm going to say it about you and your colleagues and your coworkers and these teams of people are just absolutely unbelievable and awe-inspiring. And it's just, we thank you, couldn't thank you enough, and we continue to thank you and support you. And I'm so glad that you're the person there in case one of us gets sick. And I just wish you and your family all the best. You know, hopefully we'll all get through this together. 
I just want to say two more things, if possible. Number one, like you said, I'm one of the many. It's I'm not unique in this. There's so many of our colleagues and friends and who are doing the same exact thing. And that's where I think a lot of my hope comes from. I, I'm not unique that so many people around me are doing the same exact thing, the same exact calculus in their head, trying to figure out how they can help and save people. That's really what's going to help us win. And then the other thing is, there's been an outpouring of support for us healthcare workers, which is really appreciated. But the reason I can come to work is because of the people who I'm leaving at home, my, my wife, my family, who are helping me get to work. So I don't have to be home taking care of everything there. And that's another thing that people don't always appreciate. In order for me to come here and do what I'm doing and for my colleagues to come and do what we're doing, it's those other people who are supporting us. It's really so, so important. A hundred percent agree. And like you said earlier, when you made this decision to come back and go into this higher setting, you had to speak to your family. This is the, These are the people <laughs> that you had to clear it with. It wasn't just a unilateral decision to be a hero. Yeah. This is a group decision, a family decision. And the entire family deserves credit. Your entire family deserves credit. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I learned so much from speaking to, as I always do. And I look forward to seeing you a lot. I can't <laughs> and, wait to be back on labor and delivery, I promise. And good times. And I am uh, wish you and your family a happy Passover as well. You too. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www healthfulwoman.com that's h-e-a-l-t-h-f-u-l-w-o-m-a-n.com if you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com have a great day the information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only it does not replace medical care from your physician Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.